We're all familiar with a fingerprint, that impression left by the epidermal ridges on each of our fingertips. Ridges wonderfully designed by God, by the way, to amplify the vibrations that you sense as your hand brushes across some surface and transfers signals back to your nervous system. There are also the things which, because of the oils and sweats of our body, leave impressions everywhere we go and can be discerned with certain techniques and powders of forensic science. There are patterns and marks which are unique to each one of us as individuals and as scientists compare those impressions left by our fingers, they can match those to identify whether two of them agree, whether two of them identify together. These are fingerprints. People have been using it for over a hundred years in, in law enforcement and science. Well, today I want to take you through a bit of a forensics test. But it's not the unique marks of your physical fingers that we're concerned with. It has to do with the unique marks of faith. And in this instance, it's not that each and every individual faith is unique and is personal and something you construct yourself or anything like that. But it is true that there are unique markers, unique fingerprints of true and genuine faith that ought to be evident in your life. There ought to be some sort of test where you can look at these identifiers and see if they match up with your faith. See whether or not you are genuine. See whether or not you are true. See if you're who you claim to be. A true believer. A genuine Christian. These are the identifiers of genuine faith. Identifiers of those who truly belong to Christ. Identifiers of those who are truly born again. Really of those who genuinely are bound for heaven. The fingerprints of faith. The identifiers of those who are saved. And so it's very important as we think about it this morning, it's actually Jesus who gives us these simple marks, a very challenging profile that he gives to us in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 22 is our passage for this morning. Very, very important. These simple marks, this challenging profile from our Lord that we find in these verses. Let me just read them for us. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you. And revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. These are words that come from Jesus' great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps his most famous sermon. It's sort of his opening statement for his ministry. He'd already come among his own people, and he already said, look, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is imminent because of arrived. He's already kind of proclaimed who he is 
in his own hometown, in his synagogue, standing before them and telling them that he himself was the Messiah. He's already sort of come and announced his arrival and announced his identity. But in this sermon, at the beginning of his ministry, this is when he really announces his message. This is really when he's defining what he has to say. This is really when he's really telling his gospel. And it's really all a message about those who are truly saved and those who are not. It's a message about true believers. It's a message about true faith. It's a message about the genuineness of those who claim to be followers of him and of God. It's a message about those who are going to heaven and those who are not. As a matter of fact, that's the way he sort of frames this message. He opens up with a statement about those who will inherit the kingdom of God, and then he ends with a picture of people standing before him on judgment day, wanting to enter into heaven and saying, Lord, didn't we do many wonderful things in your name? And he has to tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. This is a message about the self-deceived. This is a message about those who thought they were something that they're not. This is a message about the unique identifiers, the fingerprints of true faith, the signs of those who are really going to heaven. And Jesus opens it up here with a powerful summary statement, like every great sermon, a powerful introduction, a powerful statement about true saving faith with a number of sort of staccato fashion statements on the, the principles that identify a true believer, the markers of true faith. He's got a whole crowd of people who've gathered around him. Back in verses 17 through 19, Luke tells us that people were coming from everywhere. They were gathering a great crowd, a massive crowd of people from Judea and Jerusalem all the way out to the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Literally from everywhere, people were coming to him, not just hundreds, maybe like we had this morning, but thousands and tens of thousands of people were gathering and flocking to hear what he had to say. And in the midst of all these people coming together, his message is about those who are truly saved and those who are not. His message is about the fingerprints of faith. He begins by saying that kingdom citizens, true believers, are blessed. The word is makarios. It sometimes is translated happy in other ancient works speaks about people who are sort of free from the daily cares, the regular burdens of life. Jesus says these people that he's talking about are happy. He's not saying, I hope they're happy. He's not saying, I wish they're happy. They'll probably be happy. He says they are happy. They are blessed. These are pronouncements. These are declarations uh, from the Creator Himself on what leads to true happiness, true joy, true blessedness in life. These are the marks of a true kingdom citizen. Here he gives them to us, beginning in verse 20, by saying that one of the markers, one of the identifiers of these kingdom citizens is a sense of inadequacy. 
This is the way Jesus says it. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Now don't read that and think that Jesus is just some sort of social activist. That his primary concern here is with people who are materially poor. Everything Jesus says really in this sermon comes out of an Old Testament context. The context which spoke about poverty and lowliness often. As a matter of fact, you can open up the Psalms and you can read over and over again this reference to the lowly or to the poor. And you know one of the interesting things about those Psalms is that many of them were written by a king, King David. A man who had palaces, a man who had servants, a man who had wealth. A man who had literally all kinds of material possessions, and yet over and over again, he would qualify himself as poor. You see, because this doesn't talk about material poverty. This is in the classic Jewish context, the classic Jewish concept of poverty, of lowliness, which has nothing to do with the material world. It has everything to do with the spiritual world. This is a lowliness of spirit. Jesus is saying, blessed are you if this is you. If you sense your spiritual poverty. If you sense your spiritual bankruptcy. Now you need to understand that whenever you talk about poverty, and you're reading about it in the New Testament, there are two words that were used to describe poor people. There's the word pentecost, which is basically a description of people who had no land, they had no ongoing means of support to you know, plant fields and have some regular income. And so they would have to go out every day into the marketplace and seek after work. They would have to find work, labor all day with their hands, take home their paycheck, feed their family, and the next day go right back out to the same mill. They were constantly having to live hand to mouth, constantly under the burdens of life, having to provide for themselves and for their own. They were constantly having to to seek after and to work and to labor and to strive and to anguish, all of that. And they always were, were having to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, move forward with life, always having to to sustain themselves by these laborious efforts. There's another word though, not Pentecost, but the word is tokos. And it describes a different kind of poor people. Describes the kind of people who are so poor because they can't work. It describes the handicapped. It describes the people who were not hireable. They weren't able. They were, they were completely dependent In fact, sometimes it's actually translated beggarly because these were the people who had no other recourse but to go out there and to completely depend on the good will and the the, uh, beneficence of others. These were the people who had no capacity in themselves to do anything for themselves. They couldn't work. They were completely incapable, completely inadequate, completely destitute, completely and utterly poor. They were the beggars. This is the word Jesus uses here. He's talking about the utterly destitute. 
He's talking about the people who have absolutely no resources. These aren't just the people who are working hard and trying to make up for all their shortcomings and trying to clean up all their messes. These aren't just the people who are trying to put together the broken relationships they have and put together all the pe- uh, heal all the people that they hurt and make up for all the bad deeds they did. These are the people who can't do anything. They've reached the utter bottom and they're absolutely destitute. They can't lift anything. They can't do anything to raise themselves out of the muck and the mire that they're in. These, Jesus says, are the blessed ones. The ones who have absolutely nothing to offer. He's talking about a spiritual state here. Spiritual poverty, a spiritual condition in which we come to the Lord with this this utter brokenness. In other words, Jesus is talking about the marker of genuine faith here being this kind of sense of inadequacy. These are the ones who go to heaven. These are the ones who are not self-deceived. These are the ones who are genuine believers. There's no pretense, no defense of your own standing before God or before men, no sense of worthiness, no idea that you're something when you're nothing. You know you're at the bottom. You're like the Apostle Paul who declares himself the chief of sinners. You're like a tax collector that Jesus talked about one time who came into the worship center. He came into the temple and he wouldn't even come to the front. He stayed at the back. He bowed his head down to the ground and could do nothing but beat his chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's who you are. This deep sense of inadequacy, this absolute absence of pride, of self-assurance, of self-reliance, of any claim whatsoever into any kind of achievement, any kind of standing, any kind of worthiness, any kind of, uh, of righteousness that would give you credit. You're blessed, Jesus says, when you reach this point because yours is the kingdom of God. You're happy. Because those who come to the Lord with broken hearts don't leave with broken hearts. Those who come to the Lord recognizing their bankruptcy, they leave rich. Those who come and see their inadequacy find that God has all the sufficiency they need. So Jesus calls them blessed. This is the identifier, the marker of those who go to heaven. There's a second one, second fingerprint Jesus mentions here, which is a spiritual aspiration. Not only do you have this brokenness that'll be true of every believer, but secondly, Jesus says, you have this hunger. Blessed are you who are hungry, he says. Now, once again, don't read that and just think of material hunger because we know there are hungry people all the time who aren't filled We know there are hungry people all the time who die in starvation. Literally millions a year who die in starvation. This isn't some absolute guarantee that that Jesus will eradicate hunger 
in our lifetime. He's speaking here once again in Old Testament terms, which often portrayed people as hungry after God. For example, David says in the Psalms, As a deer pants for water brooks, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, he says. He asked Israel one time, or says to Israel in Isaiah 55, Lo, everyone who's thirsty, come to the waters, and everyone who has no money, come, buy, and eat. He's talking about himself. He's saying to a people who are spiritually hungry, who are full, uh, excuse me, who, who have a deep sense of the void in their life, to come to him and they can be satisfied in that spiritual hunger. He's speaking about spiritual hunger. As a matter of fact, over in Matthew's parallel account, Matthew renders it this way Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because you'll be filled. So what he's saying here is that you reach this point of, of inadequacy. You reach this point where you empty yourself of your pride. You empty yourself of your idea of self-achievement. You empty yourself of all of your sense of standing. You empty yourself of, of any hope of achieving anything before God. You empty yourself of yourself. And then once you're empty, you're ready to be filled. And you begin to hunger God builds in you this hunger to be filled with Him. This is the hunger of every true believer. They hunger for God. They hunger for His Word. They hunger for righteousness. They hunger to be like Him. This is one of the fingerprints of true and genuine faith. When you have a true believer, they're going to be desirous to know God. They're going to be desirous to hear His Word, to know His Word, to read His Word. They're going to want to change. They're going to want to be righteous. They're going to want to be godly. They're going to want to be different. They're going to seek out accountability into their life. They're going to seek out input in their life because they no longer want to walk in sin. They're going to hunger and they're going to thirst and they're going to pursue God. This is what a true believer is. This, is. this is what he says is a blessed person. So different, really, from the world, which hungers after so many other things. Hungers after things which do not satisfy. Their hearts crave after that which is empty. As a matter of fact, at one point in the Old Testament, God rebuked Israel for this. He questions the vanity of their life. He makes them out like a group of people digging wells in the ground. They call them cisterns. These were the places that they would catch all the rainwater that would sustain them through the dry seasons in the deserts of Israel. They would dig out these cisterns to gather up all this water. And he says to Israel, he says, you're like those who do this. You dig out these cisterns, but they're broken cisterns. He says to them, you've forsaken the living God, the fountain of, li uh, of living waters, and hewn for yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the way so many people are. Isaiah 55, 2. God questions Israel, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? This is the folly of people who are trying to fill their life with all these vain things. 
fill up the void that's there with all the vain, empty trappings of this world, all the broken things of this world. Over and over again, one disappointment after another, they keep going. But Jesus says when you're a true believer, you're going to hunger for Him. It's interesting, hunger conveys three qualities, I think, that are really bound up in this. First of all, necessity. A true believer isn't going to look at the pursuit of God, the reading of His Word, time with Him in prayer, time with God's people, time in church. A true believer isn't going to look at those things as optional. He's going to look at them as necessary. They're going to desire this not just as some, some... ornament on their life, but is the very core of what they must have in order to survive. Secondly, when you speak of someone who's hungry, hungry, you talk about intensity. In other words, this isn't the image of some bloated, you know, sort of obese person rolling around in their satisfaction. Jesus uses the image of hunger here to convey a sort of intensity. I mean, you can take someone who's hungry and you can put in front of them a brand new car and it'll have no appeal for them if it doesn't satisfy what is their burning desire at that moment, which is to fill their stomachs. When you're hungry, everything else loses its appeal so that you can gain the one thing you're focused on, the nourishment that you need for your body. In other words, this is sort of an all-consuming passion that comes into your life if you're a true believer, an all-consuming passion for God that marks every genuine follower of Christ. And then thirdly, we speak of totality. Or at least we could in this verse. It's interesting whenever you look at uh, this phrase or phrases like this in Greek. Greek will often have what they call a partitive genitive, which is kind of uh, speaking of of a part of something. So normally they would construct their sentences by saying, I am hungry for of food. Or I am hungry literally for, or I am thirsty literally for of water. Some water, we might translate it. But it's interesting, when Jesus says this, Mark, I'm excuse me, Matthew records it more fully in his gospel. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for some righteousness. He discards the typical construction, grammatical construction. He doesn't say, blessed are you if you want some righteousness. He says, blessed are you if you want righteousness, total, complete, whole, he says. In other words, Jesus isn't talking about people who want to add a little religion to their life. A little church attendance, a little ritual, a little good deed here and there. That doesn't mark true believers. That doesn't make you any different than anyone else. What's the fingerprint of true faith? It's that all-consuming, intense passion. that, That yearning desire that you want to be like God. And you don't want a small portion of God. And you don't want just some little thing on the side. You want your life to be transformed into His likeness. 
This is what Jesus says to those who may be self-deceived. This is what he says is the fingerprint of genuine faith. There's a third one. He mentions at the end of verse 21, and it's sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin. This is what he says in the second half of that verse. Blessed are those who weep now. They're in a state of remorse. They feel pain and grief, mournfulness. Now think about it, nothing could be more illogical than what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who weep, or we might even say happy are the sad. That doesn't make sense, does it? Happy are the sad? But Jesus is telling us this is the way to true happiness. Especially doesn't make sense in the midst of a society than a world around us that tries to shun mourning in every way. I mean, our whole society has basically concluded that any kind of sadness, any kind of depression, any kind of mourning, any kind of weeping is always unnecessarily bad. And so it's always met when you bring it with some form of entertainment, some form of medication, some form of therapy, something which the world would say must correct or get right what is wrong in you if you're mourning or if you're sad or if you're weeping. Well, Jesus says this is the pathway to blessing. This is the way to God. Sadness, weeping, Mourning. We have a whole economy that you might say in one way is built around avoiding this. Industry upon industry, trillions of dollars that people spend year after year to to deal and to avoid and to cover up this kind of sadness. Money and energy and massive amounts of money and time all spent in order to try to entertain you out of your sadness or drown your sorrows or to medicate your sorrows or to get you in some other way to forget about your sorrows. Sadly, even churches reflect this mentality. Mourning is to be avoided at all costs. Sadness is to be done away with. Christians are not to be that way. They're to always be bright, always be jovial, always be giddy. In fact, I remember someone brought me their son one time for counseling, and they brought him and said, you know, he's disruptive to the home. He's disruptive to our whole family. He himself, you know, is is sometimes self-destructive. We don't really know what to do with him. Would you meet with him? Would you talk to him? So I said, sure, and we brought, I brought him in, met with him for an hour or two in my, home, in my office, and we were just talking, and I was talking to him about the gospel and about what true Christians are and about the hope in God. And at some point, maybe about an hour into it, the, the kid just broke down and started crying. I mean, literally fell apart in front of me. I just sat there for a couple minutes weeping, and I wasn't always even sure what to say to him, but I just comforted him with the gospel. And I was so encouraged You know, felt like we had really broken through there. And then his parents came and picked him up and they called me back 
later that day or the next day, and they said, you know, we're not bringing him back. I said, well, why? I mean, I thought we were making progress. They said, you made him cry. (laughs) As if that's bad. They had some version of Christianity where that didn't compute. That's not supposed to happen. That's not spiritual. That's not desirable. Jesus says, you're blessed if you weep. You're blessed if you mourn. You're blessed if you're sad because that's when you're penetrating through the superficiality of life that you normally live at and you're going down so that you can see the bankruptcy of your own heart. You can see the the lost condition of your own soul. You can see your waywardness and you can feel your, your distance from God. You feel the sadness that's there. That's the way to God, he says. So you're happy if you're sad. You're happy if you're weeping. These are the fingerprints of genuine faith. This is what true believers look like. They're saddened by their sin. Now, there is a kind of sadness that comes for people, not because of their sin so much, but because of their guilt and shame. They get caught doing something. They were trying to cover it up. They were trying to build some sort of shallow, superficial mask of spirituality and someone uncovered it and they get filled with grief and shame and tears. But not so much because of their sin, but because of the humiliation of it. Jesus is talking about those who see themselves before God and they feel that shame before Him, that sadness before Him. They're blessed. They're the ones who are on the pathway to heaven. There's one more fingerprint that we could mention here. Jesus mentions it in verse 22. And that's a separation from the world. The fingerprints of faith, the main ones he mentions here, the sense of inadequacy, the spiritual aspiration, the sorrow for our sin. And then finally, he mentions a separation from the world, which is what he's talking about in verse 22 when he speaks about the people who hate you and ostracize you. And this is a hatred, he says, that isn't just random, but you'll notice at the end of verse 22, it's particularly for the sake of the Son of Man. It's hatred, he says, of Christ himself. Jesus spoke of this often in his ministry. He continued to warn his disciples that if they were true in their faith, that the world would hate them. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me at John 15 for a moment because Jesus explains this a little bit more here. John 15 and verse 18. He says, If if the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You're not like them. And if you brandish the colors of your Lord and Savior, if you're a true disciple of His, It's going to hate you the same way it hated him. I remember going to a football game with my daughter. She was probably 10. We'd gotten these great tickets to this great game. 
It was an Alabama game. <laughs> I was trying to be on my best behavior. But the tickets were right in the middle of the other team's seating area. So here we come in with all of our gear on, already, you know, a little bit intimidated. The people, you know, when you're trying to go down the aisle, they don't even want to move out of your way. They're sticking their knees further out, you know, so you're having to... So we get in here, and um, I mean, well, we were winning pretty good, okay? Let's just say it. And I was trying to be good, you know, 7 to nothing, 14 to nothing, 21 to nothing, 28 to nothing, and here I am twiddling my thumbs, and it's still the first half. <laughs> and then like, like one minute before the halftime, a quarterback rears back and throws a bomb to our best receiver, catches it in the corner of the end zone, and we go up 30, what, 35 to nothing. And I just couldn't contain myself anymore. <laughs> I leaped up. I was just cheering, cheering. And then I saw the looks. <laughs> and I'll never forget my little daughter, when, it came, when I realized what was going on, was clinging to my leg. And she said, Daddy, I'm scared. <laughs> Jesus says, look, if they hated me, they'll hate you. You're not on their team. If you got the true marks, the true colors of a believer, this will happen. How do you know if you're a true believer? What are the fingerprints? Jesus says one of them will be a separation from the world. You will be different than them, and your righteousness will be confrontational, even if it's not preached with words. Even if it's just your life, like Abel, who never said anything to his brother Cain, and yet his righteous life provoked the wayward heart of Cain every day so that Cain eventually took the life of his own brother. Jesus says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Excuse me, Paul said that. It's true. If Jesus were here today, the world would still hate him. They would hate him because he would have the message of their sin, their judgment, their condemnation. They wouldn't want to accept. And so you'll have this. And you'll notice Jesus implies here in Luke 6 that it's primarily verbal that you're going to be receiving. He says men will hate and ostracize you. That is, when you will not comply when you will not ignore sin, when you will want to pursue righteousness, you'll want to avoid sin, you'll be inevitably forced to separate yourself, which will, which will prick their conscience. They will harass you. They will abuse you. Jesus says they'll cast insults at you. That is to say, they will call you maybe on one hand self-righteous, or on the other hand, they will call you naive, ignorant, intolerant, someone who doesn't know how to enjoy life, someone who's too heavy-handed. Or worse, he says at the end there, they'll spurn your name as evil. That is to say, they will not accept that someone from the heart can so pursue righteousness, can have such a genuine life. I know those people that I've 
had to speak with in the past and try to convince them of their need for Christ or show them the, the incongruency of their own sin and their own life. I've had the unfortunate experience a couple times of those men saying to me and say, well, pastor, you know, everyone does it. Everyone's got their secret life. They just can't accept the fact that you would genuinely pursue righteousness from the heart. And so they'll seek to discredit you. They will overemphasize your faults. They will ignore the good that you do. They will falsely accuse you just like they falsely accused Christ. They simply cannot believe that anyone would live by such righteous standards without some hidden motive. You're different. And you'll be hated because of it. Ironically, Jesus says you're blessed when this happens. In fact, verse 23 says rejoice and even leap for joy. Leap for joy when this happens. Why? Well, basically two reasons. First of all, because your reward is great in heaven. That is to say every thought of a lost opportunity, a lost job, a lost relationship, a lost friendship, lost reputation... All of that stuff, he says, is remembered by God and is rewarded in heaven. Every affliction, every uh, disparaging comment, every form of persecution is remembered, he says. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. So you rejoice because you know God sees it all. And there is no true loss. There's only gain. Secondly, maybe the more telling reason is because it confirms your distinction from the world. In the same way, he says, their fathers used to treat the prophets. This is the same way that every righteous person, every true believer, every person bound for heaven has always been treated. In fact, down in verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so they did the false prophets. In other words, there's a way to avoid persecution. And it's obvious. Live like the world. Live and let live. Cost you nothing. Look just like them act just like them, behave just like them. Let your life match what's out there in the world and no one will give you any grief. You can put on a mask of Christianity, you can go to a church, but your life isn't changed. It isn't any different. Go along with the world, laugh at its jokes, enjoy its entertainment, smile when it mocks God, be ashamed to take a stand for Christ and it will bring no persecution. You'll be popular perhaps, but it'll be at the cost of heaven. No true saving faith. Very simple, these fingerprints. You leave marks wherever you go. Everything you do, everybody you touch, everything you 
interact with. I guess the question is, what are the marks? Are they this deep sense of inadequacy? Are they this hunger for God? Is it this sadness and weeping and mourning? This separation from the world? Or is it just a game? Is it just a show? I guess a simple forensics question is that these are the marks that identify a true believer. Do they identify you? Are you a match for what Jesus says is the one who's going to heaven? Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we are grateful that you have spoken where we might be self-deceived. Lord, we know that we once lived perhaps in hopes of heaven but not being genuinely changed. But Lord, you came and made known to us that sadness is the way to happiness. Brokenness, mourning, weeping, declaring our own spiritual poverty, hungering and thirsting for You, and making ourselves Your own. And now, Lord, there may be those who hate us. They may hate our righteous life. They may hate our profession of faith. They may hate our gospel. But we know they hated You. And we'll gladly stand with You. Because You'll take us to be with Yourself. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who have been nothing but masquerading as Christians. They attend a little worship, a little activity with the church. They do a good deed every now and then, but they don't have the identifiers. They don't have the marks. Lord, I pray that today they would search their own heart. I pray that they would examine themselves according to your word. And find the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.